been a wonderful service so far. And uh, we want to jump right into the book of Daniel, where we left off last time. So let's open our Bibles and uh, get over to Daniel chapter 7. We've been doing a series called Dream and uh, looking at all the amazing text about the prophet Daniel, learning about what he went through and what he saw and how God worked through him, through all the challenges and all the victories and how that can apply to us as well. So before we jump into Daniel chapter 7, you can be opening your Bibles there. I want to make sure that we do a little overview of the sequence of events because time actually shifts going from Daniel 6 into Daniel chapter 7. Now up to this point, it's been written from a third person point of view. And as we cross the halfway line of the whole book of Daniel, we're now going to shift into first person point of view. Dan is going to start talking about things that he sees. And when he does that, he actually goes back in time a little bit. And I'll explain this like so. Book of Daniel starts with him being taken from his homeland from Jerusalem and dragged out with all the captives of Israel to Babylon and into Babylonia. That's 605 BC when he's about 15 years old and starts working for Nebuchadnezzar in the palace. Then we have chapter two with the interpretation of the dream of the statue. We have three uh, with the fire. We have four. And then it jumps in time to chapter seven, which we're about to do today. Then chapter eight, He's in his 60s here, still in Babylon, but the first and third year of Belshazzar. Then we go back to chapter 5, and then we jump to chapter 9, which we're also going to cover today. Then we finish off with chapter 6, 10, 11, and 12. Are we sufficiently confused yet? All right. It'll make more sense as we go, but it's important, especially for those of us who are deciding to go a little deeper in the text and our own personal study to remember how the sequence of events go. And you're going to see it come into play spiritually, how God blesses Daniel and then allows him to go through a trial and picks him back up again and allows him to go back into a trial. So we're going to focus today specifically on chapter 7, 8, and nine. So let's open our Bibles there. We're going to start in Daniel chapter seven, starting in verse one. And we're going to read some text from all three of the chapters today and merge them together into one lesson. Here we go. Chapter seven, verse one. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions passed through his mind as he was lying in bed. He wrote down the substance of his dream. And I'll skip down to verse three. Four great beasts, each different from the others, came up out of the sea. All right, so we're going to stop there for a minute and start diving into what some people feel like is one of the more complicated books of the Bible and even one of the more complicated chapters. There's all these visions. It's like Revelation. How does anyone understand it? What do these beasts mean? Well, we're going to break it down today. You guys ready? It's actually quite easy. Remember in chapter two, when we broke down the statue, same thing going on today. All right. So here we go. In the original statue in chapter two, each part of the statue was representative of an empire that either was happening now or was going to come in the next few hundred years. And it was a prediction. It was a prophecy that all of these empires, as powerful as they seem, would all come crashing down. They named what the empires were going to look like. And here's an extension of that vision. And this is not Nebuchadnezzar that has a dream now. This is Daniel with his own vision of what's to come. Let's break it down. 
First off, just like the head, Babylon was of gold, we have now a winged lion. And we can trace the Babylonian history from 605 to 539 B.C. Then Persia comes in, described here in Daniel 7, as a bear uh, chewing on three ribs. And from 539 to 331 B.C., we have the Medo-Persian Empire in control of the civilized world. Then, next, we have Greece. This is 331 to 168 B.C., described as a four-headed leopard. And then Rome, finally, 168 B.C. to 476 A.D., a long empire under Rome and many of the Caesars, described as this ten-horned, iron-teeth beast that just destroys all enemies in his path. As the beasts go on, they kind of progress in meanness. The animals get more ferocious and they keep sort of eating each other until, you know, they defeat and then someone else comes along and defeats them. So, very simply, each of these beasts represents an empire. Remember, Daniel's written, uh, you know, about 550, 600 B.C. So this is all hundreds of years before these things happen. And I don't know about you, but whenever I see the Bible where we can point to something that's written way ahead of what it happens, and then it happens the way it says, that increases my faith. It helps me to believe that I'm reading a book that's legitimate, that's backed by history and archaeology. And so it helps me in that way. In Daniel chapter 8, we're actually going to move now to the next chapter. We're going to make some points here about how these things relate. In Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 1, we're going to get some more visions now and some more animals. So get ready. Verse 1. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, okay, remember in chapter 7 it started with his first year. Now we're in his third year. This is two years later. He was 67 years old. Now Daniel's 69. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, had a vision. Verse 3, I looked up and there before me was a ram with two horns. Verse 5, as I was thinking about this, suddenly a goat with a prominent horn and describes it a little bit more. Verse 7 says this goat attacked the ram furiously striking it and shattering its two horns. The goat became very great, but at the height of its power, the large horn was broken off. And in its place, four prominent horns grew up toward the four winds of heaven. All right, we'll stop there for a little bit again. What does it all mean? Well, when you look at the history and you just simply break it down, it actually makes a lot of sense. And we'll start up here. Again, this is a description now describing Greece from 331 to 168 B.C. as the goat. And I remember G and G. Goat is Greece. Okay. And what happens is, it's so fascinating how specific the prophecy gets. Again, hundreds of years before this happens. But you see what it says here? These horns are going to break down and grew up toward the four winds of heaven. Uh, the large horn was broken off. It describes this idea that even as... As uh, Greece comes in and defeats Persia, described as the ram, Greece itself, its horns will be broken and then split into four. And if you keep reading, it describes that even more. What does that mean? Well, pretty simply, if you look at history, Alexander the Great dies at 33 years old. It's too early to have an heir to the throne. So what happens is the empire of Greece gets split up into four kingdoms with four generals in charge of each one. What does Daniel describe them as? His vision were four other horns. Does that make sense? Again, this is hundreds of years before this stuff happens. And then after these four rule for a while, there's another one. And if you keep reading in Daniel 8, it says another little horn grows up. And this little horn 
is uh, someone who becomes very powerful. And uh, most historians agree that this is Antiochus, the little horn. And there's even some discussion about this being a dual prophecy, not only of Antiochus, who would disgrace the temple of Jerusalem by sacrificing swine there, eating it there, um, letting the blood spill on the altar of sacrifice, basically violating all the Jewish law and putting it in their face and uh, disgracing the name of God in the temple. And he does that. And some people say it's a dual prophecy that eventually the Antichrist will come and try to disgrace the name of God, but then Jesus will come and save the day. It's a very interesting discussion. And again, I don't have a lot of time to go into all the details, but a, a a deeper study in the book of Daniel will build your faith. You will see over and over again predictions made hundreds of years before they actually happen. Now, let's break and talk about this power, the power of prophecy. Even in chapter 8, verse 14, it talks about how it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Then the sanctuary will be reconsecrated. Again, we're talking about a prediction of Antiochus who will cause disgrace in the temple of the Lord, where it will be, re- and then this is a prediction that this is how long that's going to last until the temple can be made sacred again. Now, I got my calculator out and did the math on this because I'm like, okay, 2,300 evenings and mornings, what did that add up to? And then I looked at Antiochus's rule, which was from September 6, 171 BC to December 25th, 165 BC, and it adds up. You don't seem impressed. <laughs> you're either all on your calculator or you're not getting it. This is exactly the amount of time that transpires before Antiochus is defeated, chased off, and there's different legends about how he's killed, but that's when his reign lasts. That's exactly when the prophecy of Daniel, hundreds of years before, describes what will happen until they get their temple back. By the way, that's also what, what Hanukkah is all about. Right? It's a feast of dedication. The Maccabees rise up. Judas Maccabee, the hammer, rises up against Antiochus. There's a Jewish revolt. They're able to get some victory. That's where the whole menorah comes in because they had to uh, make the oil last for many more days than they only had. And so this whole miracle, and Jesus even refers to the Feast of Dedication in the Bible, in the New Testament. This is all backed up by history and also in the New Testament. Are you guys with me here? The power of prophecy, reading the Bible, is not just about sort of knowledge and understanding more and being able to answer Jeopardy questions. This is about letting your faith increase because God sets it all up from the beginning and it happens the way that he says it's going to happen. All right, but I want to get now to my, my, the point of the day. And that is there's a price for vision. The price of vision. Let me ask you a question. You ever get something you wanted and then realized how hard it is to do it? Man, I want that promotion. I want that new job. I want that responsibility. I want to get married. We have six weddings happening in like the next six months. That's awesome. A sign of a healthy ministry. That's great. But let me tell you something. There's a price of vision. I remember uh, as a teenager, I started to, my eyes weren't as good as they used to be. And I was a soccer player and I was having a hard time seeing down the field. And I went with glasses for a little while, but that wasn't really working for me on the field. So I went with contact lenses. Any contact lens wearers in the audience? Okay, many of us. And I don't know about you, but the first time I tried to get a contact lens in my eye, 
I felt like someone was trying to torture me. I'm like, with all the technology and medical advances that we have, you're going to make me stick a piece of plastic on my eyeball? And of course, if you watch someone who's trying to put a contact lens on for the very first time, I mean, if you're friends with them and you're there, you don't want to laugh. But it's funny because you're, you're trying to, and your eye keeps blinking. So it like blocks it and falls on the ground, blocks it, falls on the ground. And then you finally get it in and then it's like folded and you're like, ah, it's like burning your eyeball. And so then it falls. You're crying, you're rubbing, it's all red. An hour later, you're like, Why? I begged my family, guys, I need this. I know we don't have the money, but I need this to be able to play soccer and do the things I want to do. All right, well, we put down the money. Here we go. And then first day, I'm like, I'm done. This is a price of literal vision, right? For me, it's a you know, trivial example. And eventually you learn how to do it. You get over the learning curve. But isn't this true in life? That so often we desire something, we pray for something, but we don't always count the cost of the vision that we have. We don't always think of the price we're going to have to pay before making that decision or before accepting that job or before going on that trip or entering that relationship. And today is an important reminder that there is a price of vision, that Daniel did want to be close to God. He did want to serve him. He did want to be the recipient of all this vision and to be a prophet to the nation. But there was a lot of cost involved. Let me show you what he went through in Daniel chapter 7, in verse 15. I, Daniel, after seeing this great vision, after being inspired by God himself, was troubled in spirit. And the visions that passed through my mind disturbed me. In verse 28 of the same chapter, this is the end of the matter. I, Daniel, was deeply troubled by my thoughts. My face turned pale and I kept the matter to myself. In chapter 8. Again, after seeing the vision, verse 27, I, Daniel, was worn out. I lay exhausted for several days. And then I got up and I went about the king's business. I was appalled by the vision. It was beyond understanding. Sometimes we see a great vision. We see what God's trying to do with our lives. He's trying to craft a path for us, whether it's career or relationship or some kind of repentance or some kingdom dream that we have to serve him. And then we start doing it. We start going down the path. We start entering the the calling that he has for us. And we start feeling like Daniel did then. We start getting worn out. Maybe a few months go by or a few years go by or a couple decades go by and we start to feel pale, troubled, disturbed, appalled. And there can be a lot of reasons why. And so again, this is a great reminder and challenge for us that sometimes it's okay to struggle through it a little bit because on the end of the line, it's about perseverance because at the end of perseverance, there's hope. It's reminding us of a decision that many of us made even to come to church today. Will I take the blue pill or the red pill? For those of us unfamiliar with the movie The Matrix, there's a moment where Morpheus, the mentor, is offering Neo, the apprentice, an opportunity to either know the truth about The Matrix, what's behind the scenes, the code for the earth, or to take the blue pill and just go right back to where he was in bliss and in ignorance. And there's quite a stark contrast between two characters in the film. On the one side, you have Cypher, who in this scene is eating a steak. And of course, in the Matrix world, the steak doesn't exist. It's it's computer code. And he's eating the steak. And he says, oh, it tastes so good. 
even though I know it's not real. You guys remember the movie? And he decides, I'm going to choose bliss, even though it's not true. And then the other side, here's Neo, Mr. Anderson, in the world, going through the mundane routines of life, trying to dodge responsibility and get away with certain things that are illegal and trying to figure out what's next, what's the vision, what, what am I supposed to do? He's an adventurous spirit. And then he gets offered the blue or the red. He takes the red and he finds himself in a very bleak, dystopian universe. He sees the truth for what it is. He sees the brains and vats. He sees the machine world. He, he understands that this is not what I thought it looked like. This is not what I thought reality was supposed to be. You say, well, this is a movie. In fact, there's a movie from a long time ago, 1999, right? Can you believe it? 1999 is a long time ago. I know. Oh, we're old. And then the students are like, never heard of it. It's okay. It's okay. It's all right. So let's set this up. On the one side is a decision for bliss. And on the other side, it's a decision that sort of requires us to see the world for what it is. And sometimes it could be very bleak. Let's list this out. On the one side, we have this sort of mentality that, you know, we're the best. Like everything we got is what's going on. Earth is what it's all about. I've got all the things I need. I got true happiness here on earth and it's bliss. In fact, the bleak side in stark contrast, there's sort of a complete negation to that. And that is there's no true happiness, complete, true, eternal happiness on this earth. That's in stark contrast. On the one side for bliss, the argument is, well, I can find a companion that's going to solve all my loneliness. All right, all my issues. Everything that I desire will be met in a mate or a best friend. All those things, all those times that I feel lonely will be resolved. And then on the other side, the person that sees in the matrix is probably going to say, loneliness is quite inevitable. In fact, even when you're with a mate, you still find yourself lonely at times. It doesn't solve all of your problems, but perhaps it's an inevitable part of the bleakness of this broken world that makes me dependent on God, that makes me turn to the living God to fulfill my spiritual loneliness that only he can fulfill. On the one side, in the bliss side, on the ignorant side, on the cipher side, satisfaction through ambition, that I will get my needs met. I will be ambitious. I will pursue career. I'll pursue accomplishment. I will use my talents for the things that make me feel better about what I'm doing. And I will get satisfaction through that. But on the other side, the bleak side, actually satisfaction on this earth, not possible. Complete satisfaction is possible through salvation from this broken earth so that I can get heaven. On the one side, now is what matters most because there's nothing more beyond. It's all here and then it's over. And actually, on the bleak side, you might say, well, now is what matters most. There's an agreement there, but not because there's nothing more, but because there is something more. And I want to do whatever I can to get there. So that's why now is very important. Now, on the bliss side, we can fall into the trap to start believing that our nation's leaders will solve our problems. And we become absolutely convinced that somewhere down the line, the leaders in our communities, the leaders of our nation, the leaders of the world are going to be able to fix our issues, be able to bring peace to our souls, unite all men and women. And we start to get really angry when those things don't happen because we're surprised that the elected official is not solving all of our issues. And yet on the bleak side, 
People that are convinced that this world is broken and God's the only answer will argue that nation, nation's leaders are absolutely unable. They are impotent to solve our soul's problems. It doesn't mean that we abandon all citizenship and, you know, we don't participate in the electoral process and democracy. No, in fact, the Bible binds us to be obedient to the local authorities and to be participants in that. However, when it comes to our spiritual mindsets, we are not convinced that our eternity, that our salvation, that the solution to our problems lies on this earth decided by other people. It's not possible. It's not what we live for. And that's why we're here in church, because we hear what's called the good news, which is, guess what? We're imperfect. We make mistakes from the top to the bottom. Whatever experience, whatever position anybody has, it is only the perfect God that will give us perfect justice and perfect salvation for eternity. Amen? We have to be reminded of that. And personally, we have to start thinking, what is God's vision for me? Now, I understand. Okay, I understand. Wow, the stark contrast. Do I really have to be in one or the other camp? Isn't there an in-between? Man, I I don't want to be ignorant and just eat the steak and believe everything is real when I know it's not. I also don't want to have such a bleak view of the universe. Can I believe that humans are good? Of course you can. No one's saying you can't do that. But the answer is in God. The answer is there. You have to search to find it. What is God's vision for you? What is the vision that it's been for you these years? Or perhaps if you're starting to study the Bible or visiting with us today, has it ever occurred to you that God has a plan for your life? Perhaps that plan lies in opening up the scriptures and looking at the Bible and really paying attention to what it says and applying it to our lives. I know that several people are making that decision right now. Some are visiting with our campus ministry and some with our edge ministry and some with our marriage ministry and deciding, man, this church is really challenging me to look at the word of God. They're they're saying, don't take my personal word for it. Look at the Bible. See if what it says is matching to what we're saying. And I like this and I want to keep studying. And perhaps that's God's vision for you right now to be able to pursue his word and figure out what's next for you. Perhaps uh, for some of us, we are wrestling And we've been wrestling to try to break free, to try to shake the chains off from particular sin. And maybe it's been a haunting sin that has been a bedfellow for many years and hard to shake off. Follows you around like a shadow. And every time you try to shake it off, it seems to come back after a little while. Sometimes sin, like an addiction, is one of those things that we can be in denial of. We say, well, you know what? I know other people struggle with lust. I know other people struggle with lying. I know other people struggle with pride. And whenever there's a message about it, we're sort of like, hey, I'm glad that guy heard it. And we we have a hard time having a sober estimate of ourselves. And that is sort of the first sign of addiction is denial, not just a river in Egypt. So what we have to do is start asking ourselves. I know. (laughs) If I have wrestled with this, over and over again, and I'm not finding release, then is it possible that the common denominator in my defeat is my pride? And not the church and not the Bible and not God, but me. And so we start to ask ourselves, what could God's vision for my life be? Is there another way that I could go about this? Let me open myself up and get some help. You know, for many of us, you know, we've been disciples of Jesus for a while. 
And perhaps at one time you had what some people might call the kingdom dream. You know, you, you had a vision. You were thinking about maybe going on a mission team to another country. Or maybe you were thinking you would end up in this position in the church or in this leadership role or whatever. And maybe over time uh, it didn't exactly go the way you wanted. And you felt like that kingdom dream changed or diminished in some way. And maybe even some of us question, was that really a kingdom dream? Or was that a dream that someone was trying to push on me to have? We start to ask ourselves these questions. I think those are good questions to ask. My question is, what's God's vision for you? That's what we should be asking. And we can look to scriptures that call us to a particular vision. A vision of being a disciple of Jesus. A vision of being a servant. A vision of loving others. A vision of loving God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. A vision that we might be able to mature to the point where we can teach others and help others and mature others. And maybe even at some point be like Jesus in the sense that we are influencing many other people in the way of love. You know, these are the dreams that I think some of us have to revive. They've died for no good reason. And it's starting, it's important to start with the question of where does the dream come from? Is it just from my ambition? Is it just from somebody else? Or is this from God? And the way you do that is you go back to the word and you search it for his answers. What is God's vision for you? Now let's turn to Daniel 9 together in Daniel 9. And we're going to see all of this come together. All this prophecy and all this this power of the vision, the price that Daniel is paying is going to be worth it because he sees something that gives him more hope than anything possibly could. It all comes together. And I'm going to give you snippets of Daniel 7, 8, and 9, but stay in 9 because I'm going to read a chunk of it in just a minute. Or actually, we're here now, sorry. Daniel chapter 9. Now, he starts in chapter 9, verse 1 and 2, explaining where he's at. And he said, okay, I'm here. Uh, we have a new leader, Darius. Uh, Persians in charge now. And then in verse two, he says he's having a quiet time. He says he's having a personal devotional time with the Lord. And what is he reading? Do you see what he says there? He's reading the book of Jeremiah. Great book, by the way. The weeping prophet. Price, price of a vision. Okay. So he's reading Jeremiah and he goes, man, I just figured something out. You ever do that when you're reading your Bible? You're sort of reading on your own and you're reading, you're going through, maybe you're reading a certain book or, you know, you, someone mentions something and something just hits you out of nowhere, right? So that's what Daniel's doing. He's talking in the first person here. Is, I was reading Jeremiah and it hit me that Jeremiah predicted that we would be captives taken away from Jerusalem for 70 years. And he did the math and he said, wait a minute, we're about up. We're just, we're, we're close to 70 years. And he starts getting excited and starts asking himself, man, what does this mean? And it's so cool in verse 17, of course, the whole chapter is amazing. And he's praying to God, he's confessing the sins. He's, he's saying, God, is this the time that you're going you're to vindicate us and release us from captivity? He says in verse 17, now our God, hear the prayers and petitions of your servant. For your sake, Lord, look with favor on your desolate sanctuary. Give ear our God, and here, open your eyes and see the desolation of the city that bears your name. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous, but because of your great mercy. Lord, listen. Lord, forgive. Lord, hear and act. For your sake, my God, do not delay, because your city and your people bear your name. First off, let's just cover that great verse right in the middle. We do not make requests of you because we are righteous. 
You know, if we were ever in the boat where we had to earn the Lord's favor with our righteousness, would we not be in a heap of trouble trying to earn enough spiritual points to to get to the level where we deserve his mercy? And don't you love that Daniel just puts it like we all need to put it in our prayers. Lord, we are asking you not because we deserve it, not because we're so righteous, not because we work so hard, but because of your great mercy. And so when we ask for God to forgive us for our sins, we say, Lord, I'm trying. I'm trying to change. I want to be free from those sins. Please help me. I'll do whatever it takes. But Lord, not because of my righteousness, but because of your mercy. We remind God who he is in his nature, that he's a forgiving God, that he's a merciful God, that he's a God that wants to pardon us. He's a God that when we're feeling all the guilt in the world and all the worldly sorrow, oh, pity me, I'm terrible. And God goes, I know that's why I have mercy. You being a struggler is a prerequisite for me blessing you with mercy. You can't take 102 until you take 101. You have to know sin in order to know what forgiveness really means. And he continues to remind us of that throughout his scriptures. Yes, in the Old Testament as well as the New. Sometimes the Old gets a bad rap, right? Oh, I don't like the God of the Old Testament. He's so filled around. I like the God of the New Testament. And that dude, Jesus, is awesome. What? This is awesome. Because of mercy. And then what happens? The angel Gabriel shows up. In verse 23, as he's praying, Gabriel, he says, as soon as he began to pray, a word went out. And this is actually just going to be a little appetizer for our next week's sermon about the spiritual realm. Fantastic stuff. I can't wait to get into that. But it's amazing to know that our prayers are heard in heaven. That God responds And we might not always see or feel the immediate response, but we know God is hearing us. So let's put this all together. Daniel 7, 8, and 9 all comes together. If we look at some of the key moments of each of these chapters, we see it come together. Chapter 7, verse 13, we start hearing and seeing a description of another person. Before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. There's a reference to the ancient of days. In 825, he will destroy many and take his stand against, talking about the evil one, against the prince of princes. Yet he will be destroyed, but not by human power. Some spiritual, bigger, better power will kill the little horn. 926, the anointed one will be put to death and will have nothing or will possess nothing. What is this a prophecy of? This is Jesus. This is Jesus, the son of man, the ancient of days, the prince of princes, the anointed one who will win the battle, but first has to be put to death, put to death. And then if we look in the New Testament, Jesus himself says Daniel knew what he was talking about. And if we read in Matthew chapter 26, in verse 63, Jesus says, well, in response, the high priest, of course, says to him, I charge you under oath by the living God. Tell us if you're the Messiah the son of God. And Jesus says, you have said so. And he replies, but I say to all of you, hear this. And they would have known what he's referencing. From now on, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming on the clouds of heaven. He references several of the other references that Daniel made. What is he saying? Because they ripped their clothes after that. 
You say, whoa, what is that? Okay, that's what some of the old Jews would do when they felt like a disgrace, a, a blasphemy has been spoken. They would tear their robes. God, why have you done this? Like a tearing of the heart. Because what is Jesus saying? He's saying, I'm the fulfillment of the prophecy. I am the son of man. I am the ancient of days. I am the holy one. I am the anointed one. Yes, I am he who stands before you now. And in chapter nine, it says you're going to put me to death. Guess what you're about to do? You're going to fulfill the prophecy unknowingly. And they said, no, you're a blasphemer. You're a false prophet and we will kill you for it. And he said, you said it. You're go, go ahead and fulfill it just the way it reads. And he goes to the cross for us. And in Daniel seven, as we close now in verse 14, he was given authority glory and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Let's bow our heads and pray for the communion. Our father in heaven, we are moved by your word. When we come together on Sundays like this, we are eager to hear your voice as John Adams was talking about. We're eager to hear you through the singing and through the prayer and through your own word that resonates to us right now. Thank you for Daniel. Thank you for these chapters. Thank you for these prophecies that were made hundreds of years before they happened and they happened so clearly and precisely. God, thank you that it lifts our faith to know that we trust in a God and the word of a God who keeps his word. God, thank you also for Jesus. Thank you that he was willing to count the cost. He was willing to count the price of vision. And that you had given him a vision up in heaven that, son, I want to send you down to the earth and I need you to go save them, but you're going to have to die and live like them. And I'm sure that was a hard conversation, Father, for you to have and for him to have. But I'm so grateful that you had it. I'm so grateful that he thought about the price he would pay. I'm so grateful that he came down to earth. I'm grateful that he was a man. I'm grateful that he saw and wrestled with the same things we wrestle with. I'm grateful that he, he bled red just like us. And that he felt the pain and the sting of death. But that, Father, differently than all of us, he rose above. He had victory over death. Victory over sin. And that because of him, we get to live free today. God, help us to decipher what your vision is for our lives. Help us to break free from the shackles of sin, to make the decision to follow you forever. Father, to become those who teach others and raise others up to take our place as we move on. Father, we want to be in a thriving living church that you set up with your own son 2,000 years ago. We pray to pay him homage right now as we take communion, as you remember the body and the blood through the bread and the cup. God, thank you for this time. Help us. We love you. In Jesus' name. Amen.